Matthew chapter five, uh, we are going to spend um, the next little bit of time back into uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So uh, I'm, I'm just gonna jump right into our passage. We're gonna kind of follow the same pattern we have for the past several weeks. We're gonna read, pray, and then we'll look into, uh, in, into two particular, um, verses seven and eight this week. Uh, but I wanna read all of the Beatitudes, verses two through 12. So uh, Matthew chapter five, we're gonna start in verse two and I'll read through verse 12. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Merciful Father, who sees and who hears and who draws near to his people, this morning we ask that you would do that. Sovereign God, draw near to us as we study your word this morning and as we look at you. Lord, as we look at these character attributes that describe who you are and what you've called us to be, Lord, would you open our minds to understand Lord, would you soften our hearts to hear and receive? And Lord, would you shape our will to believe and obey all that you've called us to? God, may we behold you in your glory, in your word today. And God, may we be changed forever. Spirit of God, please work in us now. We ask this in the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are now officially on week three of the Beatitudes. Um, this morning, we're going to look in verses seven and eight, merciful and pure in heart. Uh, and I'm not going to take a real long time to do a fully comprehensive view of the previous Beatitudes. Um, just if you've got questions on it, ask your neighbor. Uh, hopefully, they caught the first two sermons. If not, I guess you can podcast it if you want to. But uh, we're, we're not going to fully dive into them. But I do want to just kind of give a really like, like, 95 mile an hour drive by kind of tip of the hat to them to make sure we're, we're on the same page. The first, the first thing to remember on this is that the Beatitudes are inseparable. We don't just go, hey, you know what? Let's talk about mercy today and, and mercy is all I got to think about. These, they're like kind of bricks in a wall. You, they build one on top of another. Uh, and, and so we don't separate them from one another. Um, we, we grow in them all together, okay? They're not, uh, they're not characteristics or they're not attitudes that we just put onto ourselves. Like, I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna be more merciful Day, right? I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna mourn my sin more. No, they're, they're characteristics that we embody. They're not rules that we follow. They're what we follow as, they're, they're what we become as we follow and submit to the king. So uh, all of the Beatitudes are united by this one word, blessed. 
Blessed, right? It's what we want, blessed. Uh, and we've seen over the past several weeks that what blessed means is to have a deep sense of contentment, of joy, and satisfaction. So that's what blessed means. And we find that in order to be blessed, the only way you can be blessed is if you submit to and depend on the king. So our main point for today our main point for the last couple weeks and our main point for next week is still the same because the Beatitudes are a unified thing is this. A truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. A truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. So the Beatitudes, uh, this, that's our main point. That's, that's kind of our, our quick tip of the hat to them. Um, so let's look at this week, uh, five, seven, seven and eight. Um, they, they show us, after what being blessed is, they show us what life under the king is like. So just as our, our quick, quick poor in spirit, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means we don't bring anything to God. When we mourn, we mourn our sin. Uh, and when we mourn our sin, we find comfort. So that in verse four. Then in verse five, we're meek. That means strength under control. Christ is our strength and the spirit is who controls us, okay? Um, so that's what it means to be meek. And when we're meek, um, we find happiness in the king. After meekness, uh, what grows in us is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of these things as we walk in, into the rest of this sermon, but, but that's just a real quick unpacking of what those are. Now, Matthew chapter five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Life under the king is full of mercy. Now, one of the interesting things about these two Beatitudes to me is where they fall into the order of the Beatitudes. Notice that neither one of these are placed at the front. They're kind of more towards the back. And that is really important for us to understand what mercy is. Notice that mercy flows out of being satisfied with righteousness. This is really important for us to understand because the mercy that Jesus is calling his followers, he's calling us to embody today, flows out of a heart that has been satisfied with righteousness. Now, last week, if you're here, we talked about there's two types of righteousness, okay? Remember, there is positional righteousness and there's personal righteousness, Positional righteousness is when we recognize we're poor in spirit. God, I've got nothing to offer you and I'm mourning my sin. And then God says, you're right, but I will save you. And God gives you his righteousness. He gives you the righteousness of Jesus. So in that moment, as you stand before God, naked and ashamed saying, God, I got nothing. He says, man, here's my righteousness, take it. Positionally, you are righteous before God. But then we send a, spend a lifetime of pursuing righteousness. We, we spend a lifetime of trying to embody and become these beatitudes. That's, that's personal righteousness, okay? So he gives us the righteousness, uh, that's positional, and we become righteousness, our life of pursuing Christ, of, of growing in the beatitudes. Um, that, that's what, that's what personal, personal righteousness is. Now, when you seek God, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does the promise of verse six say? You will be satisfied. And you're satisfied because in Christ, you have all you need. In Christ, now, when God looks at you, what does God say of you? He says, you're approved. He says, man, well done. Why? Not, not because of a work that you've done, right? You got nothing. He says, because you're in Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're, in Christ, you are approved. In, in Christ, you know what you've got? You've got friendship. 
You've got friendship with Jesus. You've got friendship with the Father. And then you've got community. You've got community, a relationship of knowing and growing with God, but then he places you into a community of the saints. You've got the church, a bunch of people who come together and say, man, the one thing that unites us is our fallenness, is our poorness in spirit. And you've got, so you've got community and then you've got an inheritance. You're co-heirs with Christ. We talk about uh, the meek shall inherit the earth for being, you will, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got a future. Literally, not figuratively, you've got all you need in Jesus. You are completely blessed. And what then flows out of, of those previous beatitudes, of being satisfied, of an inheritance, of comfort, of a future, of community, what flows out of all of that? Mercy. Mercy, true mercy, biblical mercy, the mercy that Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes, the mercy that is an identifying marker of the followers of Jesus is a mercy that comes from a satisfied heart. So if mercy flows from a satisfied heart, the question then is, what's mercy? What is it? What is the true definition of what Jesus is getting at? Now, when we come to define mercy, we gotta be kind of careful. Because mercy is one of the um, initial attributes that God claims of himself. So if God says, I am merciful, then how we understand mercy is in light of the character of God. So, so we need to be careful in how we define it. So uh, for instance, Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. What does God say to the Israelites after he's delivered them? He says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. One of the ways that God first describes himself as being a God of mercy. So when we set mercy in the context of God, we find that it's completely inexhaustible. Can we like really fully understand or fully define what mercy is if you're looking at it in light of God? If you set mercy in the context of Exodus, and you think for a minute about what did God, how did God show mercy in the book of Exodus, right? Exodus 2, God sees, he hears the cries of Israel. He moves towards them. He delivers them out of Egypt. He walks them through the Red Sea up to Mount Sinai. He speaks to them and gives them his word. He reveals, I mean, man, just, I, it still blows my mind away. Can you imagine standing at the base of a mountain and seeing all this thunder and clouds and lightning and go, man, that God, the spirit of God is there right now speaking to me. Just, he get, they get that. Then God takes them, even in their rebellion, he delivers them up to the promised land, right? That, so, so we see mercy there. Uh, we, we can back out of Exodus for a little bit if we're trying to understand what God's mercy looks like. We preach back, I preached back in November on the book of Jonah. I don't know what you remember about Jonah, but I remember that Jonah, God called Jonah and said, hey, Jonah, I've got a word for you. I don't know about you guys. Anybody here, if God said, hey, I've got something I need you to do, and you heard the audible voice of God, how would you think you would respond to that? Man, that kind of motivate me to like step out and go, yeah, I heard that one. I'm going, man, right? What, is, what does Jonah say? Nah, no thanks, God. I don't have anything to do with that. I'm gonna buy a ticket. And I'm gonna go the opposite direction. And so God sends a storm after Jonah. And so Jonah's on this boat and all of a sudden he's like, you know what, God, I'd rather die than face whatever you have for me and those Ninevites. So, so Jonah jumps over the edge of the boat. Man, he gets tossed over. I'm just, I'm just gonna end it all. What's God at mercy do? Sends a fish, right? Man, I'm sinking to the body of the ocean. 
fish swallows him. He's, he's now in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. Says, okay, God, I get it. I get it. I repent. I'll do what you asked me to do. Fish spits him out. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches the worst sermon of all time. Five words. Five words is all it is. Hey, you know what? Nineveh, 40 days, you're going to die. I know you guys wish that I would get to that level. I'm just not there yet, okay? I'm not at five words. 40, five words, horrible sermon. 40 days, you're gonna die. And then he goes outside the city to watch it burn. And what happens? The whole city of Nineveh repents. Mercy. And God sees Jonah, he's sitting on the edge of the city waiting, waiting on Nineveh to be destroyed. And what does God do to Jonah who's sitting out here sweating in the desert? I'm gonna make a plant grow up and provide some shade for you while you wait in judgment of these people that I've said, I'm gonna redeem. Mercy, <laughs> right? And then God kills the plant to say, Jonah, hey, Jonah, listen, I, I, know, I know you think you know best, but I, those are my people. They're mine and I'm gonna save them. Even if you're mad at them, I love them. Do you, do you see the mercy of God in Jonah? Do you see the mercy of God in Exodus? Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Right? There's this servant who has to settle an account with the king. And he owes the king 100 grand. It was 100,000 talents. I don't know what 100 grand, 100,000 talents means in our day. 100 grand. And, and so the king, he goes, I can't pay you back, king. I'm sorry. Please have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the king says, you know what? I'll forgive you. I'll let it go. And what does that servant do? He walks out the door and he finds somebody owes him 100 bucks and says, you know what? Give me that $100 now. No, I'm like, I don't have a hundred bucks. I'm gonna throw you in jail till you get this paid back. The king hears about this and, and the king walks in uh, to the wicked servant in Matthew chapter 18, verses 32 through 35. Then the master summoned him, the wicked servant, and said this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, the parable of the wicked servant was lived out in the life of Jesus. Because the creation of God owes Jesus a debt. A debt of righteousness, a debt of obedience, and a debt of submission to him. But what has creation done? Not your way, but my way. Not your will, but my will. And as rebels to the king, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve abandonment. But Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When we recognize our wickedness and we cry out to the king, he in mercy hears our cry and he forgives our sin and he makes us alive with Christ. So what then is mercy? What is mercy? How do we define what we have observed? I think D.A. Carson's definition of mercy captures it best. This is what mercy is. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. Church, we see this both in Christ coming towards us. 
Just the fact that he came is a picture of mercy. It shows that he came to forgive. And then we see it in, in his life. Think about Jesus in uh, the gospels, right? How many times is Jesus walking into town and somebody cries out, son of God, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do when he hears son of God, have mercy on me? He heals, their, he heals them. He heals them of their sickness. He heals them of their disease. Jesus responds to them. He forgives the guilty and he has compassion for the suffering and needy. Now, if this is what mercy is, then the question for us is, how do we live out mercy? How, how do we do this? Now, we gotta be kind of careful here, right? If we, we go to Matthew 7, 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Because we, what we can do is we can be tempted to take this verse at face value. And if we take it at face value, what we would begin to tell ourselves and think is that in order for us to receive the mercy from God, we have to give mercy to others. Right? If we just want to look at it at face value, that's what we can begin to think. But the problem with that is, is the rest of the Beatitudes. Right? How, can you imagine walking up to God saying, hey, God, listen, I'm, I'm poor in spirit, but I showed mercy to this guy over here. So can I get some mercy? Right? It's, it's like walking up to God going, I think what I have in my bank account is enough to satisfy you. But that's not how mercy works. The way the mercy that Jesus calls us towards and what the mercy of Matthew 5, 7 is founded in is the fact that, man, God, I got nothing. And if it ain't for you being merciful, I'm, I'm, I'm damned. I have no hope. If receiving mercy was dependent on our giving of mercy, then the rest of the scriptures wouldn't really matter. Showing mercy, as uh, one commentator says, does not earn mercy from God, but it does express the humble repentance that is essential to receiving divine mercy. No, in order to show others mercy, what we have to do is receive mercy first. We have to recognize that we're poor in spirit. We have to mourn our sin, and then we have to seek to live a life with the strength of Christ under the control of the Spirit. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when those things are true of us, when the first four Beatitudes are true of us, do you know what we naturally do? Man, we give mercy. You will show that you have received the mercy of God by giving the mercy of God. When you live in submission to and dependence on the king, you will find that he satisfies you, that he comforts you, that he brings you contentment, and that he is your joy. And when you have that, you're blessed. And when you are blessed, you can't help but show other people mercy. Received mercy overflows with mercy to other people. This means for us that when somebody slanders you, or somebody persecutes you, or somebody gossips about you, or falsely accuses you, or maybe they actually hurt you, or when they neglect you, or when they subvert business deals, what do we not do? We don't respond in revenge. We don't turn our, our nose up at them in self-righteousness and go, how dare you? We don't argue and seek vindication for ourselves. What we do is we look at them, and do you know what we see? We see us. We see us in our brokenness. We see us knowing that, man, I would do the exact same thing if it wasn't for the mercy of God towards me. No, instead, we're satisfied. We're content. We're joyful. We're blessed because it doesn't matter what the enemy's arrows fly at us, what the world brings about to us. 
He can accuse us. He can send hardship and calamities our ways. But we got all we need in Jesus. We are perfectly content. Then we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, man, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Man, it doesn't feel light and momentary sometimes, does it? Sometimes it hurts. When they talk about me like that, when they say those things, when they think that way, when other people gossip about me, that doesn't feel light and momentary. It feels weighty. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When I have understood the mercy of God and I have received the mercy of God, it doesn't matter what outside things come in because I've got all I need in Jesus. And I know that when the father looks at me, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And because he has said that when Christ is my firm foundation, when he is the rock in which I stand, when he's the king who rules over my heart, I see the wrongs of this world. I acknowledge them. It doesn't, mercy doesn't mean we just pass over them and ignore it. No, I, I see that there is brokenness in this, but I don't just go, nah, that's gonna be their problem. No, what does mercy do? What does Jesus do? Mercy moves towards in forgiveness in pursuit of reconciliation and restoration. Mercy moves to heal. It brings hope to the hopeless. Mercy truly received by God always leads to you giving mercy towards others. The true inclination of a disciple's heart, the true like knee-jerk reaction when life punches you in the face is mercy. Think for a minute. I, I know enough of you in this room to know that there's brokenness in almost every situation here. Like some, in some way, some, some form or fashion in your families and relationships, you got problems, right? That's kind of why we're here today, going God fix our problems. Think, think about your broken situations in your life. Think about your broken situations in this room. Without mercy, is there any hope for those things? Maybe mercy from you or mercy from God, but without mercy, there's no hope. Church, if we are merciless, what we really are is hopeless. Because what's in our heart if we don't show mercy towards other people? What, what's going on inside of here when you don't knee-jerk show mercy? For me, I'm angry. For me, I'm bitter. For me, I, I want to talk and I want to convince you that I'm right. And that I'm the one, I'm going I'm to vindicate myself so, so I have self-justification, self-righteousness, there's pride. All this is growing up in me. Now, in, in all of your broken situations, does any of that bring healing? Does any of that bring hope? No. None of that reflects the work of God towards you. Only the mercy of God shown to you and through you grants hope. And here's the thing. You cannot show mercy towards others if you have not received the mercy of God for yourself. So our question is this. Have you received God's mercy? Have you fallen before the God of the universe and said, God, I got nothing, and without you, I'm doomed. 
Have you received the mercy of God? And if, if you have received the mercy of God, for those that say, yeah, I'm submitting to and I'm depending on the king of kings, the question for you then is this. Do you reflect God's mercy? Because if you are not flowing out God's mercy towards other people, ah, then your heart's not full of it. You haven't actually received it. Are you giving mercy? Are you a conduit of mercy towards others? Jesus calls his disciples to be people who give mercy because they've received mercy. When you are truly blessed, when you have received the mercy of God, it just flows out of who you are because you're saying, God, I'm submitting to you and depending on you. No matter what's going on in the world, I trust you. You got this, Lord. I'm trusting you. Handle it. I'm going to give mercy. I'm going to seek to heal. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus then looks at his disciples and he calls them to purity, right? What a next step. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, if I was writing the Beatitudes, uh, I think that I would uh, probably put this one towards the top. I mean, I don't know about you, but like hearing the word of God is really cool. That's great. But can you imagine for a second seeing God? Think about that. Think about creator of the universe, right? Rolls in my mind, Isaiah, man, he's standing in the throne room of God looking up and there's angels and all these weird creatures floating around and and he can see the train of his robe. You think about Moses in the cleft of the mountain. He got to see the backside of the Lord. Can you imagine beholding the king of kings? Now, I wanna go straight to see God. (laughs) That's where I wanna go. But notice that with all of the Beatitudes, Jesus doesn't give the promise first. He gives the call. Jesus is not emphasizing what you get. He's, getting who, he's emphasizing who you become. Jesus calls his disciples to be pure in heart. Now this would have been a change of mindset for his disciples, right? They're walking around today to day, and who's the preachers and teachers during that time frame? It's the Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees say? Hey, you gotta keep the word of God. You gotta obey the word of God. So in order to obey the law of God, what we're gonna do is we're gonna set up a fence around the law of God so that we don't even get close to breaking the law of God, right? That, hey, don't, don't look wrong, don't do the wrong thing, don't say the wrong thing. That's what the Pharisees are all about. They're all about doing the right thing on the outside. But what was Jesus' teaching continually about? Start to finish. It's about the heart. He doesn't say, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, here in a few weeks, we're gonna look at Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus teaches on adultery and on lust. And he says, adultery doesn't happen as an act. That's not when the sin happens. The sin happens when it happens in your heart. If you have looked at a woman with lustful intent, then you have committed adultery in your heart. That's what Jesus says. Jesus calls out the Pharisees on several occasions. He rebukes them for being concerned about the acts of a person and not the heart from which the acts come. Jesus' call is to be pure in heart. It's about an inward obedience that leads to right action. And what do you know about your heart? Your achy, breaky heart. Anybody got achy? No? Yeah? Somebody? Okay. Anybody, what do you know about your heart? Right? Uh, we've heard, uh, what, what are I say? I, I actually Googled um, phrases, sayings about the heart. This is so disgusting. Uh, we'll, see, we'll hear things like, man, he's just got a good heart. He's, he's got a good heart. He's a good person, right? Uh, students, teenagers in the room, have uh, any of you heard, just follow your heart? Just follow your heart. Hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Just follow your heart. In which we say, bless your heart, right? That's usually not, that's not, not something you want to hear. 
I'm going to do kind of quickly here. I've got like five, I think, Bible verses that I just really kind of picked quickly on what the Bible says about our heart. Okay, so I'm going to throw these up on the screen. Matthew chapter five, no, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus speaking to the, to the Pharisees. What does he say? You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That's New Testament. Let's go old. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis chapter eight, this is after the flood. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. What about before the flood? Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. How is your heart? What's your heart look like? What do you think and believe of your own heart? Is it desperately wicked and deceitful? Man, I don't want to follow that heart. Don't do that. Ooh. How, think about your words, things you say, about your actions this week. How'd you treat your kiddos this morning? Moms and dads, anybody else in the room? Yeah, that, that's evidence of what's going on in here. What does Christ call his followers to be? Pure in heart. <laughs> We got a problem. My heart ain't pure. I can look through those and go, that, don't, that doesn't fit me. I'm not gonna fall into that category. Then we can look at passages like Psalm chapter 24, verses three and four. The psalmist cries, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's gonna stand in his holy place? Who's gonna be the one to see God? The psalmist is crying for it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What's your heart look like? Think about your day. Like we don't have to go to we don't have to go to yesterday. Let's just talk about today for a minute. What, what's going on in here? How does your thoughts and your words and your actions and the way you relate to people is it overflowing with mercy or is it pure? Is it pure in heart or is it is it filthy? Is it black? What hope is there for us? God is merciful. He gave us a psalm to help us see this. Think for a minute back in the Old Testament. This guy named David, right? What does David do? David, how do we know David? He's the man after God's own heart. He's the king. Best story of David, right? He's up one night, sitting over, sipping a glass of wine, going, man, I have done it. I have expanded the kingdom. I'm sitting over Jerusalem. This is looking awesome. My, my soldiers are off to war. We're growing, we're growing this promised land. This is well, and lo and behold, David looks down, and what does he see? Bathsheba taking a bath up on top of the roof. And he goes, I want that. So he calls and he has her brought to him. And then all of a sudden Bathsheba conceives and has a child. And so now all of a sudden he's going, "Uh uh-oh. There's a problem because Bathsheba's husband was in the battle, right? Uriah. So what does David do? David ultimately has Uriah placed on the front line of the battle so that Uriah would certainly die and he does. Man, that's the man after God's own heart. That's, That's what he does. Prophet Nathan comes into David and he tells him a story. He tells him a parable. He says, David, how would you react if you saw something like this happen? And David goes, oh, kill him. It's the worst guy ever. And Nathan looks at the prophet and says, you are that man. 
And how does David respond? Psalm 51. The Bible tells us, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Talked about how earlier our, our heart is dark from, from our youth, right? I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Oh God, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Now what does he say? This is the culmination of it. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. David recognizes that in the depth of his sin, that his problem is internal and that he can't just overcome it. Ain't nothing he can do to make his heart be better. He can't just be more righteous. No, David cries out to God and says, God, create in me a clean heart. Prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, God is giving a promise to his people of a new covenant in which he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, get, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Church, this is a work that only God can do. But when you submit to and you depend on the king, do you know what he will do? Man, he'll give you a pure heart because that's the kind of God that he is. Behold, now you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Church, when you fall on your knees, recognize, recognizing, man, I don't have a pure heart. I don't have that. I am, I am a person who is poor in spirit and I am mourning my sin. And God, I'm asking for you to lead and guide me and I am hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And God, I need your mercy. What does God give you? He gives you a pure heart. But just like that righteousness that we talked about, there is both a positionally pure heart and a personally pure heart, right? That moment, what does God give us? A pure heart. But then we spend, as you know, the rest of our life seeking to lay aside all the weights of the things in our life. We seek to grow in Christ. Uh, Peter, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23 says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since, got this guy, had this part, since you've been born again. Look, you don't purify your soul and become obedient. You don't love others from a pure heart so that you're born again. No, you do those things because you've been born again. And once you are born again, what do you do? Man, you seek the rest of your life to live in purity. A pure heart of obedience flows out of a pure heart that's been given to you, made of a new creation. Notice that Peter is just reaffirming the words of Jesus. He is challenging the readers to live with a heart of obedience and submission to Christ, not just conformity to his word. Ultimately, what is Peter and what is Jesus calling their disciples to do? He is calling them to submit and depend on the king. How's your heart? What are your words and your actions and your relationships? What do they show about what's going on inside of you? 
Church, what happens? What happens when we walk with a pure heart and have a pure heart? What's the promise for you? You get to see God. You get to see him. The creator of the universe, the Lord who holds the earth in his hands. I'm reading through Job in uh, in my morning devotionals right now. And I finally, finally got to the part where God speaks back to Job. And and God's like, Job, man, what, what, where were you when I established where the sea would start and stop? Where were you when I said, you know what? I'm not going to let those waves crash up any further. Where were you, Job? You get to know that God. You get to see and behold the king and creator of the universe. Is there anything more magnificent? Is there anything more majestic or awesome or amazing? Jesus promises that to those who submit to and obey him will receive the true blessing of seeing God. Now, there is certainly an eschatological, big theology word, an eschatological view to this promise. That means an end times there is, a, there is a view that what Jesus is making here is that one day, one day you will behold the king of kings. You will see him for all who he is if you're in Christ, right? You get to see that. What Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this, he said, if you're in Christ, you are meant for the audience chamber of God. Man, do you, do you think about that? Do you think about the fact that one day you get to sit down next to him? Do you set your affections on that? What, what would that even look like for me to just go, man, I, I love that and I want nothing more than that. So, so there's an eschatological view that is seeing God. But I think the question for me as I've wrestled with this passage is this. Can we do that today? Can we actually see God now? Yes and no. There is, uh, Paul says, that we see through a mirror dimly. Um, So so we don't see in full. On this side of eternity, no, we won't behold God with perfect clarity. But I do think there are ways in which we can catch glimpses of the glory of God and see the works of God and even see the character of God. So I think about Romans chapter 1. And and Paul says that the glory of God is beheld in creation. You, you You can see God from the sunrise this morning. Where we live, you can see God in the wind blowing, right? Carries away all the bugs, maybe. <laughs> you can see it that the wind doesn't blow tomorrow. Uh, we, we see it in a, in a freeze that finally kills all the bugs, right? No, we, we see God in creation. We see it in, in plants growing. We see it in eating watermelons, right? I hope you see it in eating watermelons. We, we see God all around us uh, in creation on a day-to-day basis. We also think that we see it in one another, Right, we talked about First Peter, uh, where Peter calls us to live in brotherly love and affection. Where does that flow from? Man, that flows from a heart that comes from God. You get to see the heart of God when you love one another like God loved you. So, so you get to see God here. When the church is the church, when it does what the church is supposed to do and who it's supposed to be, you get to see God. You get, to, you get to see, we don't get to see it fully, but, but we do get to see glimpses of it. Church, the promises of God are incredible. You can see them. You can be comforted. You can be satisfied. You can receive mercy. I, I hope, I hope that as we look at the promises, even briefly, it stirs up in you joy and excitement. 
But the promises of God are only for a certain group of people. They're not for everybody. The promises of God are only for those who submit to and obey the king of kings. So the question for you today is, have you submitted to him? Have you recognized your state and cried to the king of kings? And if not, there's no hope. God gave his mercy to us because he took it from Jesus. And if you say, I don't want that, then you don't get the mercy. Have you experienced the mercy of God? If not, your heart is still impure and hardened. By the mercy of God, submit to his call today. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is a kind and good king who is full of mercy and grace. But for the rest of you, for the rest of the people that say, Jesus is my Lord, I am willing to submit to him and obey him. Are you a conduit of mercy? Is your knee jerk, is your knee jerk just to go, man, mercy, I forgive and I'm gonna move towards. I'm gonna show compassion just like he showed it to me. Or you wanna, you wanna defend. Here comes that inner lawyer, man. I'm, I'm ready to fight. Is that you? If that's you, Repent. Are you living in obedience to purify your heart? Are you walking in the purity that God has made you to be? I'm reading also through 2 Corinthians, um, and, and I, I want to close with 2 Corinthians 7. This was, this was something that hit me the other morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says this. Since we have these promises, church, he promises to give you a kingdom. He promises to comfort you. He promises to give you an inheritance. He promises to satisfy you. He promises to give you mercy. He promises to, that you will see him. You have some incredible promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Church, may we be known as a people who are full of mercy who give it, who see the brokenness of our community and move toward it with the mercy of God. May we be a church full of people who are pursuing purity and righteousness and holiness because that's what God made us to be. May that be true of you and may that be true of me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the mercy of God because outside of your mercy... There is no hope for me. There is no hope for us, God. We are hopeless outside of your mercy. So thank you. Thank you that you are a God who gives us new mercy today and tomorrow and every minute of every day. And God, help us not to make light of that. Help us not to slight that, God, but help us on our knees in gratitude to be thankful for it and to worship you because of it and then to pursue a life. May it lead us to live differently, to be a type of people that give mercy to other people. God, forgive us when we want to stand up and fight for ourselves, when we think we know better. God, forgive us for not being merciful. God, forgive us for not being pure. Forgive us for wanting the wrong things, for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. God, change us. God, shape us, Lord. We, we, in every one of these Beatitudes, we can't do it. God, I, I can't become just merciful on my own. I don't want to. I want to stand up and fight for myself. God, grant us mercy to become merciful. Grant us purity to become pure. Grow that in us, Lord. 
Lord, do that, do that so we can see you. Do that so we can see the glory of God here now. God, do that so our community can look into liberty and go, man, that church is full of mercy, and, and I see the character and work of God in and among them. God, may that be true of us. May that be true that our community sees that in us. God, don't do that just so, so we grow. God, do that so you're glorified. God, do this so your name is lifted high and that you are worshiped so that thanksgiving may grow and it may increase and abound and abound more and more. Lord, do this for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.